Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Go ahead and grab a seat. And I'm so excited to be starting a brand new series with you today in the Old Testament book of Habakkuk. Um, I love these scripture journals, too, with the nice art on the front of them. It's such a great resource. For me, when I prepare my sermons, I actually just use those and write all of my notes there. There's so much room for you to study God's word, and um, I commend the use of these scripture journals to you in your own Bible study. Now, I'm almost certain that when I announced a couple weeks ago that we'd be studying the book of Habakkuk together, that at least 30% of you were like, yeah, nice try, Pastor. Like, that, that's totally not in the Bible. You're making that up. You're trying to fool me. There's no such thing as Habakkuk. Maybe you assumed I was being like the pastor who, he ended up telling his congregation, he said, hey, next Sunday, I'm going to be preaching from Mark chapter 17. And so I want all of you to go ahead and read ahead. And be prepared so that when I come and preach next week, you're ready. And the next week he showed up and got in the pulpit and he said, Hey, how many of you by a show of hands did what I asked? And you read Mark 17 throughout the week. And a bunch of hands went up throughout the congregation. And the pastor said, That's funny because there is no Mark 17. And then he said, This morning I'd like to share a sermon with you on the sin of lying. How many of you, if you got caught lying in church like that, would just get up and leave? I I don't even know if I could just stay after that, but I'm not here trying to fool you, obviously. As we've seen, Habakkuk is in the Bible, and what I hope you'll see through today's sermon and the next few weeks is that it is an incredible, incredible book. It's full of wisdom and a very relevant message for us here today. Now, you may already know this, but there are various genres of literature within the Bible. The Bible is 66 individual books that are all put together, and within those 66 books, there's these different types of genres of literature. Now, you probably recognize the word genre from the world of film, right? When we talk about movies and we talk about film, we talk about various genres. There's horror films, of course. There's drama. There's Bob's favorite, which is westerns. There's my favorite, which is action and adventure. There's Danny's favorite, which is chick flicks. Sorry, Danny. He's single, by the way, ladies. Let me just throw that out there. Single and he likes chick flicks? This is awesome. That's probably not his favorite, but I I couldn't resist. But there's these different genres, right? These different types of uh, movies, and you have different expectations based on the genre of the film. Well, In the Bible, again, there's these different genres of literature among the biblical books. So, for example, you've got historical narrative, you've got poetry, you've got proverbs, you've got epistles, you've got apocalyptic literature, you have prophetic literature. And that's where Habakkuk falls. Habakkuk is prophetic literature because Habakkuk himself is a prophet. What are prophets? Well, prophets were mouthpieces for God. They were kind of like God's spokesmen. And prophets most often were sent by the Lord to his people to either call the people of God to repentance or to warn the people of God of judgment. So again, God would often send his prophets to his people to say, listen, you need to repent and you need to come back to the Lord or to warn God's bringing judgment, and therefore you need to wake up. The English word prophet is derived from two Greek words that literally mean speak for. And so when you think of the ministry of a prophet, 
A prophet is somebody who would speak for the Lord. They were, again, his spokesperson or a mouthpiece for God. Thus, you'll notice that Habakkuk, this prophet, begins this letter with the statement. He writes, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. In other words, Habakkuk is saying, what I'm about to say is something that I received. It's an oracle that I saw. It's a revelation that I got from God to give to you. And the three chapters of this book are going to share with all of us what this revelation is that Habakkuk received from the Lord. Historically, the church has classified Habakkuk along with the 11 other prophets whose writings surround his as members of the minor prophets. So Habakkuk and these 11 others are the minor prophets as opposed to the major prophets. And what does that mean? That sounds a little bit demeaning, right? Like these, these are the minor prophets and those over there are the major prophets. You can almost imagine Isaiah in heaven smirking at Habakkuk every time we call him a minor prophet. But to give credit where credit is due, the minor prophets are not called minor prophets because they're less significant. They're called minor prophets only because they're brief. So Isaiah, for example, is 66 long chapters. It'll take you hours to read Isaiah from beginning to end. But here's Habakkuk with an equally significant and inspired message from God, and it's three chapters long, and you could read it in about 10 minutes. Now, we don't know hardly anything about Habakkuk personally, other than what he tells us in verse 1, namely that Habakkuk is a prophet. That's his ministry that God has given him. Also, in the Apocrypha, which are writings that are held to be scripture among certain denominations within the Christian church, there's mention that Habakkuk could have been a priest in Israel too. So again, we know he's a prophet. Possibly he's also a priest in Israel. And that's about all we know about him. But despite not knowing much about Habakkuk personally, we actually know quite a lot about the historical context in which Habakkuk delivers his message. And the main reason for that is because of the reference that he makes in verse 6 to the Chaldeans. This is extremely important. Now, who are the Chaldeans? If you're a note taker, you can jot this down. They're the Babylonians. The Chaldeans are the Babylonian Empire. Now, we know from history, but also from the scriptures, that the Babylonian Empire invaded Judah after Nebuchadnezzar became the king of Babylon in 605 B.C., in 597 BC, Nebuchadnezzar invaded Judah and he carried away many of Jerusalem's leaders to Babylon. So that happened in 597 BC. The book of Habakkuk, which we're studying, is positioned in such a way that it's actually warning of impending invasion from Babylon. Notice God is raising up the Babylonians or the Chaldeans in verse 6. And notice also down in verse 12 that he's ordained them as a judgment. So that means that Habakkuk must be writing at least before 597 BC, when Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar came in and invaded Judah. At the same time, it seems most likely that this book is written after Babylon had overthrown Assyria as the regional superpower in this part of the world. Because the passage that we just read together this morning 
describes a Babylon who seems to have no rivals in sight. In verse 6, it says that they march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. Down in verse 10, we read that they scoff and that they laugh at rulers. So again, it's describing a Babylon who is just sweeping up every neighbor around them, gathering all of these peoples and just laughing at every other king. We know from history that Babylon dethroned Assyria as the regional superpower uh, over the course of a series of battles that began in 626 BC and ended in 612 BC with the Battle of Nineveh. And so this puts a promising date for the book of Habakkuk, somewhere between 612 BC and 597 BC. And if that's the case, and I think it is, that would make Habakkuk a contemporary of some of the other prophets in the Bible, namely the prophet Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, and Zephaniah. Pastor and commentator John MacArthur suggests that Habakkuk's bitter lament, which is covered in verses 1 through 4, may reflect the time period after the death of the godly king Josiah, which happened in 609 BC, when his successor, a man named Jehoiakim, came to power in Judah and was wicked and ruled quite evilly. And that would make a lot of sense of the specifics of Habakkuk's lament. And speaking of his lament, let's look at it more closely together now. We'll pick up in verse 2. Habakkuk says this, he writes, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear, or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Now, many of you will remember this from our study through the book of Psalms. But lament is a form of prayer that helps God's people to navigate through pain and suffering. Lament is a form of prayer in which believers go to God and they earnestly plead with God for help and for deliverance in times of hurt and misery that are brought on by suffering or injustice or oppression. Lament then is marked by honest and earnest prayer that tells God of our pain and our hurt and asks God to do something about it. Now, the language of lament can be shocking for Christians as they first encounter it. I mean, Habakkuk here is essentially asking God, why have you been asleep at the wheel? I mean, what place does doubt or frustration or complaint toward God have in the life of a believer? I would argue it has a significant place. Because here's the key about lament. Even though Habakkuk is complaining against God, even though Habakkuk is almost accusing God, again, of sort of being asleep at the wheel, here's the big key. Lament is an act of faith. Precisely because through lament we are going to God in our hurt rather than running away from God in our hurt. We're coming to him and we are saying in faith, God, the world is broken. Or my world is broken and I can't make sense of it. Can you help? 
That's an act of faith. Lament has a beautiful place in the life of the godly. And we need to recover that. Lots of Christians, and unfortunately I'll say this, especially lots of Christian leaders project an image of Christianity that has no category for doubt, no category for confusion, no category for frustration with God and with the world around us. That sort of Christianity is saying, listen, to be mature spiritually means that you have it all together. You never waver. You've got it all figured out. You never question. Everything is sorted neatly. Everything has tidy explanations. And yet the scriptures are replete with examples, just like Habakkuk, of very godly people who are coming to God and saying, this doesn't add up. I can't figure this out. This doesn't seem right to me, God. Do you maybe have a word for me, Lord? And what's so awesome is God always has a word for us when we come to him. So I just want to encourage you this morning at the outset of this amazing book that if you've had questions for God, or maybe you have questions for God right now about your life or about the world that we live in that you can't seem to reconcile, or you have frustrations, or you have confusion, or you're wrestling and you're struggling, I want to encourage you that that's not necessarily a sign that you're sinking in your faith. In fact, it might just be a sign that you're thinking about your faith. And there's something deeply healthy about that. The life of faith is not marked by a a person's capacity to never question or never doubt but by a person's capacity to bring everything back to God. And that's what Habakkuk is doing in this amazing letter. He's bringing the hardest things in his life back to God. And therefore, he's a great example of faith. Now, what is the source of Habakkuk's great lament here in verses 1 through 4? What is the source of all of his suffering and hurt? Well... We see that he's witnessing violence in verse 2. Also take note that there's iniquity or sin and wrongdoing in verse 3. And then lastly, that he's witnessing oppression and injustice in verses 3 and 4. And I'll unpack that a little bit more in a moment. But suffice it to say that Habakkuk is sitting here as a prophet of God, and he's looking out at his nation, which is the kingdom of Judah, and he sees wickedness Everywhere he looks. Instead of God's people living righteously, they are flippantly living in sin. Instead of God's people being ambassadors of peace and mercy, instead they're agents of violence. Instead of God's people earnestly following the law, they've rendered the law paralyzed, meaning that the law can no longer perform its function. And the result of that is that rather than being a fair and just society, Judah has devolved into a society of injustice and partiality. Heath Thomas, in his commentary on Habakkuk, highlights the significance of the two words that are joined together in verse 3, the words destruction and violence. Do you see them there in verse 3? Thomas says that when those two words are paired together in the Old Testament, destruction and violence, He says that that word pair can be used of the oppression of a government and its officials on its people. 
So what Habakkuk is likely looking at and lamenting is state-sponsored oppression and injustice. It's not just that he's got local neighborhood problems or he's got some family members who are mistreating him. No, no, no. This is a government that is in charge and is actually enforcing injustice. It's a corrupt government system, and Habakkuk is distressed by this. Now, going back to Jehoiakim, who MacArthur and many others suggest is in power at this time, Jehoiakim and his administration were certainly guilty of oppression of the people in Judah. The prophet Jeremiah, who I told you was a contemporary of Habakkuk, directly condemns Jehoiakim and his, his administration because of their injustice and their oppression. Here's what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah twenty two thirteen. He writes, Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his upper rooms by injustice, who makes his neighbor serve him for nothing and does not give him his wages. So here Jeremiah is condemning Jehoiakim Because he's saying what you're doing is you are actually building your palace, getting rich off of the backs of your people. Rather than giving them their wages and hiring and employing your people, you're holding back their money. You've basically just pushed God's people into forced labor. They're not being paid. You're withholding their funds and this is a great injustice. And then again, only a few verses later, Jeremiah 22, 17. The prophet says, but you have eyes and heart only for your dishonest gain. Now he's going to add a couple things. For shedding innocent blood and for practicing oppression and violence. So now he says, yeah, it's dishonest gain. You're taking advantage of the people, but it's even worse. He's also shedding innocent blood. We know from the scriptures That Jehoiakim actually tried to put the prophet Jeremiah to death. Tried to kill him. And we know that he succeeded in putting another prophet to death, a man named Uriah. You can read that story in Jeremiah 26. So here is Habakkuk, this prophet. And his colleagues, guys like Jeremiah and Uriah, are being threatened with the sword and being put to death. And the king that's ruling in Judah at this time is oppressing the people and putting them into forced labor and getting rich on their backs. And Habakkuk sees all of this and he says, Lord, where are you? What is going on here? Quite literally, the wicked are surrounding the righteous, as he puts it in verse 4. How could this be among God's holy people? It should not be so. But, and this is huge, what hurts the most for Habakkuk is not that he sees sin in Israel. What hurts him the most is God's apparent attitude toward the sin that he sees in Judah. To Habakkuk, this righteous man, it seems as if God will not hear, God will not save, and God is idly looking at wrong. Or to put it differently, it seems as if God does not care. Now that's a very long introduction to bring us to this important point. Many of us have had experiences in our life that have led us to the conclusion 
But maybe God doesn't care. How do we get to that place? Well, the answer is the same way that Habakkuk got to that place. What Habakkuk knows of God's character doesn't align with what he observes in his circumstances. Habakkuk knows God's character from the Scriptures. The God of the Scriptures is holy, and He is righteous, and He is just. He does not clear the guilty. He judges the guilty. He blesses the righteous. This is what Habakkuk knows about God, and yet he looks at the world in front of him, and it appears as if God is turning a blind eye to wickedness and injustice and evil and oppression. So there's a crisis of faith there. God, I know you to be this, but I can't square this with what I see there. And this is how it happens to every, every believer. When what we know about God or think we know about God seems to contradict the circumstances that we see in front of us, we can, if we're not careful, conclude God doesn't care. God's oblivious. Maybe God cares about all these other Christians, but he he can't care about me. There's no way he cares about me. Look at what I'm going through. Look at what's happening. Well, what do we do if we find ourselves in a place like this? We can get frustrated, and we can just walk away from God. And I've seen a fair share of Christians who have chosen that route. If this is who God is, then forget about it. I'm done. I'm walking away. I didn't sign up for this. Or you can do what Habakkuk did, which is you could go to God honestly, transparently, and you can express yourself. You could say, God, I don't get it. God, I don't like it. God, I don't agree with it. God, this is how I feel. This is what I see. This is what I'm experiencing. And I feel like you aren't even there. Is that true? So you can go to God honestly and you can share with him and then you can wait and you can pay attention to his word until he gives you some clarity. And that's what Habakkuk does. And God, in this book, is going to give him incredible clarity, starting in verse 5. So we looked at Habakkuk's lament. Now look at the Lord's answer. Verse 5. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Wow. I mean, I could stop preaching right now. Some of you are like, I dare you. It's not going to happen. I got about 10, 15 more minutes. So I could stop preaching right now, though. Like, you could just circle verse 5 right there. You, if you highlight in your Bible, you could highlight verse 5 right there. Put a little asterisk next to it. Put that on a little 3 by 5 card. Put it in your bathroom vanity. Put it on the refrigerator. Put it in the instrument panel in your car. And you'd be good with every crisis that you're going to enter in your life. I mean, doesn't this verse 
to speak of the mysterious providence of God. Habakkuk's looking right here in front of him at Judah. And the Lord says, hey, pick up your eyes a little bit. Look around you. Look at these other nations. It's so much bigger than what you can see, Habakkuk. And I'm doing something in your day right now that if I told you about it, you couldn't even believe it. You couldn't even get your head around it. And, and family, if we could get, and this is, this is by God's grace, because this is not easy, but if we could all get to the point that every time you're going through an experience in your life, and you're saying to yourself, what I know about God's character does not align with the circumstances that I'm experiencing right now. When that happens, if you could get to the point that you could just even faintly hear the whisper of the Holy Spirit saying to you in that moment, I am doing a work. You'd make it. You'd be okay if you could just by faith just grasp that and just hold on to that little nugget, that kernel of truth that we see from Genesis to Revelation that God is never asleep. The God of Israel never slumbers. He is never tired. He is always faithful. So if we could just believe that in these moments of crisis, guess what? We would make it. We would be able to get up and carry on for another day, for another challenge, for the next chapter until God takes us to glory. This is the key for today's message is this idea. That when you and I are looking out again at the circumstances of your life and you're saying it's not adding up. If you could just hear God say to you, I'm doing a work, you would be okay. Habakkuk's like, hey God, wake up. And God says, oh buddy, I haven't been sleeping. In fact, I've been cooking up something that, that when, when I tell you about it, you're not even going to be able to fathom it. It's going to be so outside of the box. It's going to be so beyond what you could even understand or imagine or conceive of. And then he's like, look, I'll prove it to you. And he goes on and he tells him exactly what he's doing. So, again, if you could take away one thing this morning from this whole sermon, it would be this. If God's character does not appear to be aligning with your circumstances, just know he's doing a work. So when Ukraine is invaded by Russia and believers are fleeing for their lives and they're looking to the heavens and they're saying, God, what is going on? I'm doing a work. When the company goes belly up and you've got no leads for another job, I'm doing a work. When you leave the doctor's office and you get that terrible diagnosis and you're bawling in your car, I'm doing a work. When the children that you poured into for years and years and years have walked away from the faith that you raised them in, I'm doing a work. When Christian leaders that are prominent and well-known have a spectacular fall from grace and the world mocks us in our faith, God says, I'm doing a work. I've got this. I'm not asleep at the wheel. I have a plan. What God is telling this prophet is don't trust your senses. How many times does God have to say this to us? Family, we walk by what? Faith, not by sight. 
I mean, that's one of the key things about our faith. It's not about what we can perceive right now in the moment. Because our God is not bound by the moment. And our God has the plan from A to Z already worked out. And you and I are somewhere around L and M and N-O-P or somewhere. God is doing a work. God says to Habakkuk, look beyond yourself. Look beyond your nation and observe, I'm up to something. What's he up to? Look at verse 6. For behold, he says, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence. All their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men, whose own might is their God. So what is God doing? There's, there's injustice in Judah. God sees it. What's he doing? He says, Habakkuk, I'm raising up the Babylonians. To clean house. I'm raising up the Babylonians and they're going to come in here and they are going to judge Judah. Now I searched the Hebrew text here so hard trying to see if I could find a reference to Habakkuk's jaw hitting the floor. And I couldn't find it, but I am almost certain that is the way that this prophet responded to that announcement. And I will bet you that rather than easing the anxiety of the prophet, it intensified the anxiety of the prophet because he knew and all of Judah knew who Babylon was. They had heard the reports of Babylon by this time. Who were they? Well, God tells us in verse 6, they're a bitter and hasty nation. In verse 7, they're dreaded and fearsome. In verse 7, we also see that their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Meaning that for the Babylonians, they had no standards of right or wrong or acceptable and unacceptable behavior outside of themselves. They would march into your kingdom and your laws didn't matter to them. They were going to come do whatever they wanted. And what did they want to do? Violence. We see that in verse 9. They all come for violence. These are people who embrace the violence of war. These are people who look forward to the violence of war. This is Sparta. Okay, different people, but same ethos. Bloodthirsty. They loved war. They wanted to fight. And they had superior military technology. We see that in verse 8. They were unstoppable. He says in verse 9, they gather captives like sand. I mean, just think of that picture. You're sitting in the sand at the beach this afternoon and you just lean forward and you pull in as much sand as you can. How many grains of sand would you pull in? Couldn't count it. It's innumerable. And that's God's point. 
Babylon is marching through the earth and the amount of peoples that they're swallowing up in their wake is innumerable. This is a terrifying announcement from the Lord to his prophet. I'll bet Habakkuk, when he came to the Lord with this prayer, he was expecting God to say, okay, you're right, things are bad. I'll take Jehoiakim out. I'll raise up a godly king. He'll bring about some reforms. Everything will be awesome. That's probably what he was hoping for in verses 2 through 4. And yet God reveals that his plan is to bring Babylon in to judge. This is a plan that was totally out of the box. This is something he would have never imagined himself. He could have never seen this coming. He wouldn't have even had a category for this kind of decision by the Lord. Especially because, as verse 11 says, the Babylonians were guilty men whose own might is their God. He says they're pagans, and notice what they worship. What is their God? Their own might. Let me translate that for you. They worship their own success. And God's going to give them more? (laughs) How can this be? How will God give them more success so that they'll just continue in their blasphemies and their idolatry? Well, God's going to get into that in our next message. But for today, we can see this, that God did have an answer for Habakkuk's initial complaint. Habakkuk said to the Lord, don't you care? Won't you do something about the wickedness and the violence that is going on in Judah right now? And God says, yes. Jehoiakim and his cronies like violence? I got an answer to that. I'm going to bring people who live for violence to come in here and give him a piece of his own medicine as an act of judgment and correction. Habakkuk would have never seen this coming. Today, I want us to just pause and just marvel at the wisdom of God and the plan of God. I mean, just stop and think about this. Habakkuk is likely looking at a span of time that lasts several years, certainly no more than 10. And he's looking at that window of time and his conclusion is God's asleep. God doesn't care about me. And yet now what do we know from this story? That God has literally been working for decades behind the scenes, raising up a people to solve the crisis that Habakkuk now sees before the crisis ever even existed. I mean, do you not see the wisdom of God? And it should just cause all of us to just shudder every time we feel in our heart that we have a legitimate reason to accuse God of being asleep at the wheel. Do you think that in your finite mind and in my finite mind that we can connect all the dots of what the eternal God is doing around the world at any given time? Of course not. But what we learn here and what we learn from cover to cover of the scriptures is that God has a plan. In Isaiah, that prophet says it this way in Isaiah 55, 8 through 9. For my thoughts 
are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now this got me thinking about the life of Joseph back in the book of Genesis. Right? He was sold by his own family, his own brothers, into slavery down in Egypt. And then he gets there, and then he's falsely accused of rape by a powerful woman. And so he's thrown off into a dungeon. And then in that dungeon, he helps some people out, and he thinks that they're going to remember that he scratched their back, and they'll scratch his, but they forget him, and he's isolated in this dungeon. And if you were to take a snapshot, just a two-year snapshot, from probably what's about a 20-year history in Joseph's life, if you just took any two-year snapshot out of there, you would have been justified in asking the question, God, what's up? What are you doing? Do you not see this? Do you not care that I'm living a righteous life and I'm obeying you and the wicked are prospering all around you? But when you realize that what God was doing in Joseph's day, would certainly bless Joseph, but would also be so much bigger than Joseph, it actually blows your mind. Because when you read the story of Joseph, you realize that through his hardships, God was moving his guy into place in Egypt so that God's people could be saved through a seven-year famine that had not happened yet. So all of the hardships, all of the sufferings for 20, 25 years of this godly man's life were so that God could position him in Egypt to deliver his people from a famine that hadn't even happened yet. And that was so important because if God's people were not saved through that famine, then the line of the Messiah who saves the world from their sins would have been wiped out. And so what I'm trying to say to you is that he is doing a work. And that when you look at God's track record and when you look at the story of the world and all that God is doing in it, the plan of God is so mind-bending that even when he tells you it, you couldn't believe it. Okay. Let's bring this to a close. Of course, you know that's preacher talk for just give me five more minutes, please. Let me make one final application as we close. Oh, I skipped over a great quote I can't leave you without. Can't do that to you. This is one of my favorite Spurgeon quotes, that great Baptist preacher. Spurgeon said this, even when we cannot trace his hand, we can always trust his heart. I love that. Because, friends, there are so many times in our story, just like Habakkuk's, when we're trying to put the pieces together and we're saying, okay, God, if you did that, then what are you doing here? Even if you can't trace his hand, we can always trust his heart. And going back to Joseph, God could have said to Joseph every single time that he hit rock bottom in his life, I'm doing a work in your days, but you wouldn't believe even if you were told. Okay, one more application and we're done. Habakkuk's generation is not the only generation to look at the evil, the suffering, the injustices of the world and wonder how a holy and righteous and just and good God can coexist with it all.
right? Believers in every generation wrestle with the complexities of life in a fallen world and the character of God in Scripture. Habakkuk's complaint was essentially this, won't a holy and just God judge sin? And God's answer was yes, but in a way that you would have never guessed. And throughout the ages, skeptics of Christianity have heard Christians talk about a holy and just and righteous and good God who also forgives us of our sins. And many of those skeptics wisely ask, how can that be? Won't a holy and just and righteous God judge sin? How does he let you all off the hook? How does that work? And God's answer to that question is essentially the same answer that he gave Habakkuk all these years ago. Yes, he will judge sin, but in a way that you would have never guessed. 2,000 years ago, the scriptures tell us that at the fullness of time, or when the time was just right, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. That's Galatians 4, 4 and 5. God's own son, Jesus Christ, would come to this earth, would assume a human nature, and then he would go to the cross of Calvary, and he would bear the judgment for the sins of all of his people. In this way, justice would be maintained. Because... Our sins were paid for. God is not sweeping our sins under the rug. They were truly and fully paid for by Jesus on the cross. So that, as Paul says in Romans chapter 3, God could be just, he does justice, he could be just, and he could justify the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. So that the message of the Bible tells us That every single sin that has ever been committed in the history of the world will be punished. That is exacting justice. God is perfectly just. Every sin, every bad thought, wrong word, inappropriate action, every single one will be punished because God is just. And it'll be paid for either by the offender themselves at the great and final judgment or, and here's the great news of the Bible, or it was paid for by God himself on your behalf if you put your faith in Jesus. Now let me ask you this. Who would have ever dreamed up that plan? Who would have ever believed that that's how God was going to sort out all justice and injustice in the world and that God was going to be just and merciful perfectly? Who could have ever imagined that? Who could have ever dreamed that plan up? The answer is no one. It's no surprise then that Paul would write this in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 and 19. He says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning 
I will thwart. How true the words of verse 5 proved to be to Habakkuk all these years ago, and how true they have been down through the ages. Because God has now told us the work that he's doing in the world through his son. And even though he's told us how many people still will not believe it. As Paul says, it's just foolishness to those who are perishing. They said that can't be the way that this all works. And so I close here. What about you, friend? Where are you? Where do you land on that? Are you a person who hears the message of the Bible, of the way that God has dealt with the sins of his people through Jesus' death and resurrection, and you laugh and you scoff and you say, no way. It's foolishness to me. Or are you a person who you hear that message and you sit in wonder and you're astounded and you're blown away and you go, oh my gosh, that's the most spectacular and genius and unthinkable plan. There's no way that was made up by somebody else. That must be the wisdom of God on display for my salvation. And therefore you say yes to Jesus. And if that's you, friend, and you're a person who says yes to Jesus and you receive him as your Savior and Lord, guess what? No matter what happens in your life, from this moment till you take your last breath, you can truly say he's doing a work and he's going to see you to the end. Let's pray together.